Welcome to episode 42 of the Neuro Network. Today, we're talking about calories, weight gain, and food. Why do we get so fat during the holidays? Why do we gain weight? Why do we lose weight? What does it all mean? And are there certain people that are more at risk of gaining weight during the holidays? If you're interested in weight loss, gaining weight, or just food in general, stay tuned. All right, so happy holidays, happy new year to everybody. I thought it'd be kind of interesting to have an episode today talking about some of the scientific mechanisms behind weight gain, weight loss, calories, all that kind of stuff, especially given this time of the year when it's very common to put on a few extra pounds, uh, certainly to get ready for the winter hibernation. Although when it comes to humans, we certainly uh, are not hibernators. So that just tends to stick around with us for a long time. And in fact, Many studies tend to suggest that a lot of the year-over-year weight gain that tends to happen throughout adulthood is centered around the holiday season, such that uh, a lot of the weight gain that happens in adulthood tends to be put on during the holiday season and then is never lost. And so year-over-year, it tends to add up to, to amass to the adulthood obesity that we tend to see in the U.S. And so, you know, just as sort of... Uh, a fun little thing when I was sitting at the airport during a lot of the travel over the holiday, I was looking up some literature to see what there was about holiday weight gain and whether or not there's actually research studies that were done looking at holiday weight gain. And to no surprise, there were certainly a lot of studies that have been looked at in order to understand why it is that most people tend to gain weight during the holidays. And so all I did was I went into Google Scholar and I typed in holiday weight gain. And so for anyone that's unfamiliar with looking up research articles, Google Scholar is great. So there's a lot of different index, like search index, uh, search engines, I guess would be a better word, that are available in order to look up scientific research paper. A popular one, of course, is PubMed, uh, which gives you access to a lot of the research studies that have been done and published through the uh, National Institute of Health. Uh, and it's, of course, run through that. And then there is something known as Google Scholar, which is Google's version of, of that, where you're able to get access to scientific articles. Um, and I tend to use Google Scholar. It's just what I use in order to look up uh, scientific papers and scientific information. And so if anyone wants to look up something and they want to see whether or not a scientific study has been done on it, Google Scholar is great. Just type it in, and then it just gives you the same little search bar that you have in normal Google, but you just type in whatever it is that you want to find scientific articles for, uh, and it'll just give you an endless array of thousands and thousands and thousands of pages of uh, scientific articles. And then, of course, um, each one is then going to go to a different scientific journal, uh, and then you can just sort of do your own filtering as well in order to sort of uh, tailor the results to whatever it is that you're looking for. So that's just a, a little aside um, for finding research papers. And then, of course, if you're not... Uh, familiar with in a, looking through research papers, there's different kinds of research papers. Some of them are review papers, which are sort of the, I guess, the best bang for your buck if you're not necessarily interested in going through the individual studies themselves. Someone else that is familiar with uh, research has already done the heavy lifting for you of finding a bunch of different papers and then writing up what they mean. Uh, or you can find actual individual research articles 
which are the studies that have, you know, your typical, they have an abstract, and then if they're open access, you have an introduction, a methods, results, discussion, all that kind of stuff. Uh, and if you want, then you can see how the authors actually did each of the of the studies and then draw your own conclusions from the data if you so please. So with that being said, like I said, I typed in holiday weight gain and I wanted to see what kind of studies were actually out there. And, and there was actually some entertaining little studies. One of them, first one that popped up, no surprise, New England Journal of Medicine. Uh, I think one of the most high impact journals that there is. It might be the highest impact journal that there is right now. So the impact factor of a journal is basically just uh, it gives you a number. Um, and based on that number, it tells you sort of how highly impactful uh, most of the research studies are within the journal. And so a higher impact factor is typically associated with a better journal. Uh, not always the case now that a lot of it's electronic. Um, but essentially what the impact factor is, is an average number of citations per paper within the journal. And so if you have a high impact factor, it means the papers within that journal have a very high rate of being cited. And so they're very impactful studies when it comes to other, um, research going on. So that's sort of what sets that. Um, and so like, you know, typical impact factors around two to four, even up to like seven or eight. Are, are relatively, you can look at them as, as relatively good journals. Like this is a good journal to publish your work in. Um, and then you have some things like Nature and Cell and, and New England Journal of Medicine that have impact factors upwards of 50 or something like that, 50, 60, 70, that have just astronomical uh, numbers. And so these journals are very hard to get research papers in. But for the most part, uh, you can have a pretty good confidence with some of the papers that have been published within the journal because uh, typically, the higher the impact factor, the more stringent some of the uh, reviews tend to be in order to actually get the papers into the journal. So for uh, the first study that just popped up when I typed in holiday weight gain, it was called a prospective study of holiday weight gain. So uh, it just has the abstract here, which just says that it's commonly asserted that the average American gains five pounds or 2.3 kilos over or more over the holiday period between Thanksgiving and New Year's Day. Yet, Few data support this statement. So this was a paper by Jack Yanovitsky, um, and the senior author was Nancy Sebring. Uh, and they are from, let's see, looks like a, a number of different universities or institutions, but Jack Yanovsky, the first author is from National Institute of Health, National Institute of Child Health and Human Development. Okay, interesting. So uh, what the paper was essentially doing, it says the, the methods here, which is quick, it says to estimate the actual holiday-related weight variation, we measured body weight in a convenient sample. Convenient sample just means that they sampled anyone that was around. That was easy to, to get. Uh, they did it on 195 adults. Subjects were weighed four times at intervals of six to eight weeks. So that weight change was determined for three periods pre-holiday, which was from late September to early October to mid-November, uh, holiday, which was from mid-November to early or mid-January, and post-holiday, which was from early or mid-January to late February or early March. And then a final measurement of body weight was obtained in 165 of those original 195 subjects the following September or October, about a year later. So data on other vital signs and self-reported health measurements were obtained from the patients in order to mask the main outcome of interest. So basically they took 195 adults, they measured a ton of different things like blood pressure, heart rate, height, weight, all that kind of stuff. Uh, but the only thing that they were really interested in was the weight of these individuals. But by putting them through a battery of measurements, 
the people that were participating in the actual study themselves had no idea that the weight was what they were really interested in. And so it was sort of, uh, it's a best attempt of what you do in some of these studies in order to try to uh, keep the individuals from specifically doing things to manipulate their weight for the sake of the study. Otherwise, you're going to get some biased results. So what did they find? The mean weight increased significantly during the holiday period. So the gain was an average of 0.37 kilograms with the plus or minus 1.52 kilos. Uh, so for kilograms to uh, pounds, it's uh, 2.2. So if we just do a quick calculation here, we can do 0.37 times 2.2. So patients uh, gained about a pound, roughly. Or I guess I shouldn't say patients. This were uh, participants gained about a pound during the holiday period, during the holiday period, but not during the pre-holiday period where the average was a gain of 0.18 plus or minus 1.49 kilos, uh, which was not statistically significant, or the post-holiday period where they average uh, lost 0.07 kilos. Um, so as compared with their weight in late September or early October, the study subjects had an average net weight gain about a half a kilogram in late February or March. Between February or March and the next September or early October, there was no significant additional change in weight for the 165 participants who returned for the follow-up. So what does it mean? It means that people tend to gain about a pound or so during the holiday period, but then a year later tend to not lose that pound. And so that pound of extra body weight that was gained during the holiday period tends to stick with them for the whole year. Interesting. So the average, so the conclusions from the paper say that the average holiday weight gain is less than commonly asserted. Since the gain is not reversed during the spring or summer months, the net, about a half a kilogram weight gain in the fall and winter probably contributes to the increase in body weight that frequently occurs during adulthood. So that's kind of interesting. And and uh, if you want to look up this paper, uh, it's actually, it gives a good little um introduction to weight gain and stuff and how uh, different classifications of weight gain and different uh, different time periods of life at which people tend to gain most weights um, is kind of interesting just to look. So like it, you know, it talks about several periods, including adolescence, pregnancy and midlife and women and the period after marriage and men appears to be times of particular susceptibility to weight gain behavior or environmental changes such as quitting smoking or emigrating to a more highly urbanized culture can also be associated with weight gain. So anyways, that's kind of interesting because uh, especially when it comes to, to weight loss studies. So weight loss research is tough. Like I hats off to those that are very good at doing weight loss research and getting at the actual mechanisms of weight loss because it is very very difficult because there's different time periods at which people gain weight and different time periods at which they lose weight. And there's a lot of behavioral inputs into why people are eating more or eating less or working out more or working out less or they're stressed or they're sleep deprived or they're sleeping extra. So there's, there's so many factors that go into modifying the actual behavior of people that is driving the weight gain and the weight loss. It becomes kind of a nightmare of trying to put people into different categories in order to understand why they might be gaining weight under certain circumstances and why they might be losing weight under other circumstances. And, you know, I've always had kind of a, a weird relationship with weight loss. So for anyone that's unaware, when I was 18 years old, I peaked at a, a weight of about 315 pounds. Uh, so I was very morbidly obese. And then 
took me about three to six months. I lost 150 pounds. Um, and then I was a, a skinny boy for a little while. Um, and then when I started to get into sports, I put on, um, what I hope to be, you know, muscle mass. And so I, I, I sort of stabilized around 200 pounds. Uh, so about 115 pounds lost and I've kept it off for uh, 14 years now. And so that's sort of been my journey with weight loss. And, and I did it, um, by, I didn't do any sort of particular diet or any sort of regime or anything. I just, I ate a lot less food. And when I say a lot less, I mean, I didn't eat that much. Um, and I worked out every waking moment that I could. And so to no surprise, when you don't eat a lot and you work out a lot, you end up losing a lot of weight. And so, you know, ever since then, I've been very conscious of the weight loss. And I think a lot of the reason why I've kept it off for a long time is the fact that I really do not want to go back to how I felt when I was obese and morbidly obese. It was tough to move around. You're always out of breath. You're always sweating. You're just genuinely uncomfortable in your own skin, which I think is a thing that some people don't necessarily appreciate too much um, and, and is that you don't realize how uncomfortable you are in your own skin until you actually lose uh, the significant amount of obesity that you might be carrying around. Uh, and then you learn what it's like to have a little bit more, I guess, self-confidence in your own body, which is something that is very hard to grasp the concept if you've never, uh, felt one side or the other. And so what I think is driving a lot of the reason why that, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not terrified to put the weight back on per se, because I know how to manage my weight now, but what is, the driving force of me diligently managing my weight is not wanting to go back to that feeling of being so uncomfortable in your own skin. And so it's a, a big driving motivating factor for me. But nonetheless, it's always been interesting to sort of keep an eye on some of the different trends that are going around for weight loss and some of the different diets. And, you know, a lot of it is just, you know, looking from the sidelines just to see what kind of crazy stuff they're conjuring up now next. Um, and it's not to say that none of them work because all of the weight loss plans can work because they all have to come down to a common denominator. They, they, like every weight loss plan, regardless of whether you're eating cabbage soup, regardless of whether you're doing paleo, you're doing zone, you're doing whatever, it all comes down to the rate limiting step in the physiological process of weight loss, Right. And that rate limiting step is the amount of energy that comes in versus the amount of energy that comes out. And that is always, always going to be the rate limiting step. I cannot emphasize that enough. Like from a purely scientific perspective, get rid of the fact that I lost the weight and I've kept it off, right? Get rid of the fact that there's a million different diets. Like we're, it doesn't, none of that matters. No biases is going to change the fact that the rate limiting physiological step for weight gain and weight loss is the amount of energy coming in, the amount of calories in versus the amount of calories out. There's a ton of different things though that can affect the amount of calories that you're consuming, the amount of calories that are actually being absorbed from the food that you are consuming. There's a lot of different things that can affect the amount of energy that you're burning. So the amount of those calories that you're actually burning for different vital bodily functions and the amount of energy that you're sort of emitting, if you will, 
And all of those things can go in to affect the amount of calories in and the amount of calories out, which is why sometimes you'll hear these marketing schemes saying that it's not about calories in and it's not about calories out. It is. It always is. But it's not as simple necessarily as just saying, you know, there's 100 calories in this granola bar, so I'm going to eat this granola bar and I'm going to have 100 calories put into my body, right? You might only absorb 90 calories of those of that 100 calorie granola bar under a certain condition. You might absorb 95 of it under a different condition. Heck, you might only absorb 50 of it under enough different condition. Or if you have a tapeworm, you might not absorb any of those calories because you got to feed the worm. And so you could, let's say if you have a tapeworm, you could eat a lot of calories and you could absorb none of them. And so you could consume 5,000 calories and lose weight, right? I'm not saying that that's a good way to go, but it's sort of like the most um, extreme example of how certain conditions can affect your ability to absorb or take in the amount of calories that are consumed. Conversely, there are different conditions that are going to affect the amount of calories that you're burning, right? If you're just sitting, chilling out at the Antarctic pole with the penguins down there, the amount of calories that you're burning on a daily basis, even just sitting there, just for thermoregulation is going to be thousands and thousands of calories. And so the people that go and do research down at the Antarctic poles have to eat an enormous amount of calories just in order to maintain their body temperature throughout the day. And so even though you can take someone that's just laying on the couch in a normal homeothermic environment within their living room, and you can compare that to someone that's laying on the couch in the middle of Antarctica during the winter. And the one that's laying on the couch in the middle of Antarctica during winter is going to burn you know, four times as many calories as someone that's laying on the couch in a homeothermic environment. And so even though the amount of activity in those two people is the exact same, the amount of energy expenditure by the two is going to be wildly different. And so this is where variability in different people's basal metabolic rates, different variability in the amount of activity that they're actually doing during the day, different variability in the amount of calories that they're consuming, and different variability in the amount of calories that they're actually absorbing from those calories that are consumed. That is what makes it all extremely muddy when it comes to trying to figure out what different protocols are actually useful for losing weight. But if you notice, no matter what you talk about during each of those processes, it all always funnels down into the same thing. How many calories are coming into the body, not coming into your mouth hole, but how many calories are actually coming into the body itself being absorbed and how many calories are being used or how many calories are actually being burnt by your body. And so if eating cabbage soup on the cabbage soup diet is a way to limit the amount of calories that are coming in, well, you can sort of force the system into a state of low energy consumption uh, and you can override some of that variability that exists by putting it at such a low calorie intake that you're going to be losing weight, right? And so you can say that it works. Conversely, when you take a look at some of the diet pills or these fat burners, uh, a lot of these are sort of amphetamine-like products that increase the heart rate uh, of individuals, and so you're increasing the basal metabolic rate. And by doing so, you're increasing the amount of energy expenditure regardless of whatever you're doing. Because if, if, again, if you take someone that's just sitting in a recliner for 10 hours, um, 
that's relatively sedated and you take a similar person and you put them into a recliner and you give them a fat burner and it increases their heart rate by 40%. So let's say that the normal person, uh, you know, the, the control person is just sitting in the recliner as a, for, for ease of math, let's say that they have a heart rate of a hundred. That'd be pretty high if they're just sitting there. Uh, and you take another person that's sitting in a recliner, same size, same weight, same everything, take their twin, give them a fat burner. Their heart rate is at 140 if you take a look at how much energy is expended by each of those two individuals, the one that is having their heart rate at 140 for the same amount of time, even though they're doing the same amount of physical activity, is going to burn a lot more energy than the person that has their heart rate at 100 just sitting there. And so that's sort of the bi- the basis as to how a lot of these thermogenic aids um, type of fat burner supplements tend to work. Similarly, different weight loss pills, different weight loss supplements are might be able to uh, change the amount of caloric absorption that might happen through the gut. They can change the amount of caloric um, extraction from the food that you're eating. And all of these things are going to change the amount of energy that's actually available to be absorbed into the body. But what is an actual calorie itself. I guess that's sort of a good place to take a back step. And so I guess to start with the fundamental question, what are calories? At their core, a calorie is a unit of energy. In the scientific realm, specifically thermodynamics, a calorie is just defined as the amount of heat that's needed to raise the temperature of one gram of water by one degree Celsius at one atmosphere pressure. So it might sound kind of purely academic, but it has very profound implications on how we understand food and energy. So to put it into perspective, think of your body as like a complex biological machine, not that unlike a car. Car needs fuel to run and different fuels have different efficiencies. Similarly, our bodies need energy to function and the energy comes from the food we eat when we measure that in calories. But here's where it gets a little bit interesting. Not all calories are created equal in terms of their biological impact. We get our calories from three primary macronutrients, or what they're called, carbohydrates, proteins, and fats. Each of these macronutrients then has a unique role in our physiology and our metabolism. Carbohydrates, primarily polysaccharides, are catabolized into glucose, fructose, and galactose, monosaccharides that enter glycolysis and provide ATP, adenosine triphosphate, which essentially is the gas that goes into our body uh, in order to actually run different metabolic processes. So it's the molecular currency, if you will, of energy. And so you can look at the amount of ATP that's derived from certain carbohydrates and you can see how much energy uh, they actually provide. Proteins, which are composed of amino acids, are not primarily energy sources. They're more akin to functional molecules that participate in structural enzymatic and regulatory roles. But, of course, in states of severe caloric deficit or specific metabolic conditions, amino acids can be deaminated and enter gluconeogenesis in order to form glucose or the Krebs cycle in order to form ATP. Now, lipids, particularly triglycerides, are dense energy reservoirs. So they undergo something called lipolysis. So lipo is in fat and lysis, which is just the the action of breaking something down. So lipolysis, which is just breaking down fat, yields fatty acids and glycerol. So fatty acids enter the mitochondria, powerhouse of the cell, 
uh, via a process called beta oxidation, which then culminates in the formation of acetyl-CoA, which feeds into the Krebs cycle to make energy, and uh, then it goes to oxidative phosphorylation to make lots of ATP. The process is a lot slower than that of carbohydrates, so sometimes they call carbohydrates your fast energy source. Uh, whereas fats or fatty acids are considered your slow burning energy source. And so like the amount of calories that you get from a single, uh, gram of fat is going to be nine versus that of a single gram of carbohydrates, which is going to be four, which is just sort of a easy way to show, uh, how much energy you can derive from one of them versus the other. Great. So calories, just the unit of energy used by the body. It's just how much heat is produced by, or how much heat is produced by each of the different foods. There's different macronutrients that uh, make up those calories that we consume, carbohydrates, protein, and fat. So with that being said, the next part that is worth dissecting is appetite regulation, right? How much uh, food do you actually want to eat? So as we kind of progress in this exploration of weight management, there's things that need to be understood about the factors influencing the calories in. So it's not merely just about what you eat, right? But it delves into the nuanced interplay of physiology, behavior, and environment that all govern uh, our caloric intake. So appetite regulation is, is a very complex neuroendocrine system that involves many different hormones, things like ghrelin, leptin, insulin, and their interaction with various brain regions, including places like the hypothalamus. So ghrelin, which is a hormone, is often termed the hunger hormone, is secreted by the stomach and it signals to the brain to increase your appetite. Leptin, on the other hand, produces produced mainly by adipose tissue, uh, conveys the message of satiety. And so the amount of ghrelin being released at any given time is going to dictate in your brain how much you feel the need for hunger uh, versus that of leptin. And so the way that the physiological systems are laid out is that when your stomach is empty, it sends out a lot of ghrelin to signal hunger for you to eat. Uh, and certainly times of starvation, the ghrelin in your bloodstream is going to be higher, which is going to signal for hunger. Uh, and leptin is primarily produced by fat or adipose tissue, uh, which is fat. And so basically when you start to accumulate more and more adipose tissue, the idea is that the leptin release is going to increase as a function of increasing adiposity or the amount of fat. And so that the amount of the more fat deposits that are occurring within the body, the more leptin that's released, which is supposed to convey the feeling of satiety to prevent you from eating. And that's sort of the negative feedback loop that's been put forth within the beautiful interplay of physiological processes within the body. But of course, humans doing what they do best largely just ignore these and eat based on different behavioral inputs rather than the actual physiological system in order to uh, tell them when to eat and how much to eat. It would be interesting, though, to see uh, if there's a sensitivity to ghrelin and leptin that is a function of lifelong adiposity, if that makes sense. So it'd be kind of interesting to see, let's say, uh, individuals that are at a higher See, this is the problem. I was going to say individuals that are at higher risk of developing um, obesity. But the problem is until they develop obesity, it's kind of hard to understand whether or not they're actually going to be obese. But regardless, the, the idea would be to figure out whether or not that people that are on a lifelong 
plan, if you will, of staying fit and not being obese, um, whether they behaviorally respond more to ghrelin and leptin or the sensitivity to ghrelin and leptin is higher. And I, I understand that that is always going to be the case. If you do a study and you look at the sensitivity to ghrelin and leptin uh, with people of obesity, it's going to be uh, lower. Like, I think that's that's pretty well established. But what I'm trying to say is the development of the desensitization of the ghrelin and the leptin. So then, in, in other words, is the sensitivity at rest, or not at rest, is the sensitivity at baseline from birth the same or different between individuals, which then determines whether or not they react to the ghrelin and the leptin with the same sensitivity from birth, or whether or not the desensitization of the signals for hunger and satiety develop over time, and is it genetically based or is it um, be or, or is it a trained response? If that makes sense. And again, it, it wouldn't be an excuse to say this is why the obesity was formed, because ghrelin and leptin only tell you whether or not you're hungry or whether or not you should be full, but it, they don't stop you from eating. Um, so it's certainly just something that would be kind of interesting, but. Of course, like I said, there's a lot of variability, and of course, in the, even with that, the ability to respond to leptin and ghrelin is always going to be highly variable. Um, many of the responses to different neuroendocrine dialogues is very nuanced, and it's influenced by a lot of different factors like circadian rhythm, psychological stress, and even the gut's microbiota um, and metabolic byproducts that are produced. And so there's a lot of different things that sort of are already going to be intrinsically affecting the sensitivity to ghrelin and leptin. So, uh, I do not pity anyone that is going to take on, um, that task of trying to understand it, but it is an interesting one. Nonetheless, on top of that, we have to consider dietary choices. So here delving into the realms of nutritional biochemistry and psychology, so the macronutrient composition of a diet, again, the carbohydrates, fats, and the proteins can differentially affect the satiety, the metabolic responses, and even the energy expenditure post-injection. So for interest, for instance, there's something called the thermal effect of food, which varies among different macronutrients. So protein, of course, has a higher thermal effect of food compared to carbohydrates and fats, which means that the energy is expended in processing the protein. So more, so anytime that you eat food, there's a certain amount of energy that's necessary in order to break down that food. And so it's actually kind of interesting if you plot the amount of calories consumed versus the amount of calories burned in order to process that food, it's somewhat linear. And so the more food that you eat, the more energy it actually takes to burn that food off, which is kind of interesting. But anyways, regardless, for different carbohydrates, proteins, and fats, the amount of energy that it actually takes in order to burn that food is different. And so protein is tough to break down. And so the, um, the thermal effect of protein compared to carbohydrates and fats uh, is that the thermal effect is, is greater. Additionally, of course, the glycemic index of foods influences insulin response and subsequent glucose metabolism, which impacts hunger and satiety. And so it's just something that's sort of interesting to take into consideration. And a lot of times you hear in these different designer diets to eat more protein, eat more protein. And, you know, it's rooted in, in, in a fine idea 
right? That it's harder to break down protein and so it stays in your gut longer and so you feel full longer and it burns more energy in order to actually digest the food. At the end of the day, I'm not sure that the thermal effect of food is going to be or or, there, or the lack thereof is going to be the common denominator as why uh, weight gain is seen in, in different individuals. Uh, I think it's sort of cutting straws at that point or, or cutting hairs at that point. But it's an interesting physiological concept that's sometimes uh, even taken for granted. Sometimes I think like when teaching cardiac physiology and uh, even um, lung physiology, it's interesting to see like, excuse me, uh, especially like with the, with the, um, coronary vasculature. So the, uh, actual blood that is being provided to the heart in order. So like the, the heart pumps blood. I think we all know that lub dub, lub dub. Every time that it goes lub, it squeezes and it, it provides blood to the rest of the body. And so the blood that's coming into the heart and actually being pumped out of the heart isn't being used to actually provide the heart with blood. So the heart itself needs blood in order to get oxygen and nutrients because it's a muscle. And so you have different vasculature that goes around the heart that provides the heart muscle itself with blood in order to pump blood to the rest of the body, right? And so the analogy that I'm trying to make is that with food and with the thermal effect of food, you have to actually eat food in order to uh, give the energy that's necessary in order to break down food, if that makes sense. And so the amount of uh, energy that's necessary to break down the food then is different for each of them. Uh, carbohydrates, protein, and fat. Great. So digestion then, which is the other portion of the process, food comes in, then it needs to be digested. And then the amount of food that's actually, or the amount of energy that's actually absorbed from that food is going to determine how many calories are actually being put into your body rather than the amount of calories that are just being actually put into your mouth and into your stomach. Those calories or that, that energy actually, or the, you know, the by the, um, the metabolic byproducts of the food that you're eating that are actually absorbed into your body to provide the source of energy, uh, can be regulated by the amount that's absorbed from the gut. So digestion begins in the mouth and then stomach, but the most intricate part of the nutrient absorption occurs in the small intestines. Here, something called the brush border, which is a densely packed array of these things called microvilli, which are just little comb-like structure things, uh, significantly amplifies the absorptive surface area. And so while this, the small intestines itself is, you know, if you take them out and you lay them linearly, the small intestines of a human is very large, right? And it's all just sort of folded up into, into the stomach or, you know, into your, if you just look at your gut, um, stomach itself is a different structure, of course. But all along the line of the small intestines are these microvilli that even amplify exponentially the amount of surface area within the border of the small intestines themselves. And then all along those microvilli, you have certain transporters that are transporting nutrients in to the body where they can actually be used. And so, so for example, like carbohydrates are broken down into monosaccharides and are absorbed primarily via sodium-dependent transporters like the SGLT1 and facilitated diffusion through uh, glucose transporters or GLUT transporters, GLUT, glucose transporters, that's where it stands for. Um, proteins, of course, are reduced to amino acids and small peptides. They utilize various transporter mechanisms, including things like sodium-coupled amino acid transporters. 
And then lipids have their own particularly fascinating thing. So lipid absorption uh, comes following the emulsification by bile acids. So bile acids emulsify the fats, and the lipids are then broken down into their free fatty acids and monoglycerides. So then they diffuse into things called enterocytes and are re-esterified to form triglycerides. So they're sort of broken down, absorbed, re-put back together once they're on the inside of the body. And then once they're put back together, they're packaged into something called chylomicrons, which then exit the enterocytes via a process called exocytosis, uh, which marks the end of their remarkable journey from digestion to systemic circulation. However, it's crucial to note that caloric absorption is not a uniform process. It varies significantly among individuals, like we talked about. It's influenced by factors like the integrity of the gut lining, enzymatic variations, and even the gut microbiome composition. So the gut microbiota, with its vast array of different microbial species, plays a pivotal role, not just in the nutrient metabolism, but also in modulating the gut barrier function and immune responses. So uh, certain pathological conditions can, of course, drastically affect nutrient absorptions. Conditions like celiac disease, Crohn's disease, and even chronic pancreatitis lead to malabsorption, which can significantly alter the, the caloric landscape that our bodies can utilize. Uh, similarly, things like uh, um, antibiotics can wipe out gut microbiota, which are going to change the amount of nutrient absorption that you're actually going to have. And so kind of to summarize, the calories absorbed is, you know, of the calories in, calories out, is a kind of a complex interplay of many different anatomical structures, biochemical pathways, and individual physiological variations. Uh, and so it's not always just, it, it is always calories in, calories out, but there are many different things that can affect the calories in. And the key is that it's variable. And variability is oftentimes a frustrating thing. But once you can appreciate variability as a system or a variability as a feature of the physiological system and not just a bug of the system, then I think it's a lot easier to, uh, to appreciate or to learn how many of these different very physiological functions work. And so it's very easy to say, well, just tell me what to do and I'll do it. But it's hard when you everyone has their own way of responding to different protocols. And so while one weight loss or one, you know, dietary protocol might work for one person, it may not work for the other. And that's not to say that that's a bad thing. It's just a feature of individual physiology. We're not all clones. And as such, the food composition that's being eaten by one person, the amount of nutrients that are absorbed from that specific diet is going to be different than that of the next person. And so while eating a paleo diet might work really well for getting a lot of nutrients for you, it may not work at all for someone else and they may end up being nutrient deficient. Similarly, if you're eating a diet of spinach and fish and it's working wonders for losing weight, but it's not working for the next person, it doesn't mean that there's anything wrong with the diet or it doesn't mean that there's anything wrong with how you're following it. It just means that the amount of nutrients that are absorbed from that diet for you are different than that of the person next to you. And so 
being able to be flexible and not to be scared of something not working is going to be, in my opinion, the best way to go. But it's tough because when you come at it from that perspective, you actually have to be consciously um, accountable for something working and something not working. And so if a certain diet isn't working, you have to just be able to suck up the pride and say, okay, it's not working. I'm going to do something else that's going to change the amount of nutrients that I'm absorbing, and it's going to change the amount of calories that are being absorbed and the amount of calories that are being provided to my body. And then that's going to be balanced with my energy intake, or excuse me, my energy expenditure, which is then going to determine the overall net effect of weight gain or weight loss. Great. So now the energy has entered our body. So now well, there's another aspect of it that's very important, which is how the body decides to store or utilize the calories that it's actually absorbed. So the process can be likened to a company's decision-making on whether to reinvest its profits for growth or retain them as cash reserves, I guess you could say. Uh, and so the primary hormone governing this decision is insulin. So think of insulin as the financial advisor of the company that guides where the resources, in this case, glucose and fats, should be allocated. In the presence of insulin, glucose uptake increases in muscle and in adipose tissue, which promotes uh, glycogenesis, which is the formation of glucose and subsequent storage as glycogen, which is similar to short-term investments in the corporate world, if you will. Uh, so in adipose tissue, Insulin facilitates then something called lipogenesis, which is the conversion of carbohydrates into fatty acids, which are then stored as something called triglycerides. So uh, again, going back to the analogy, the, the triglycerides then are um, can be compared to, I guess, the company diversifying its assets into long-term reserves. And so uh, in the absence of insulin, as in certain fast, like if you're fasting, for example, lipolysis prevails. And so the breakdown of triglycerides back into free fatty acids, resembling a company sort of liquidating its assets into cash for immediate use. And so basically the fat or the triglycerides, uh, your fat is stored as triglycerides, which then can be used later. Uh, but it's much more difficult in order to actually burn these into energy versus that of glycogen, which is your carbohydrate source, which is your sort of fast fuel. And so your body's always going to want to burn its gly um, glycogen first, uh, and then once your glycogen runs out, then you're going to trans, and then you're going to use primarily fatty acids for your source of energy or your ATP. It's not like a switch where it like, bam, glycogen's gone. We're going to go over there. It's always, you're burning a little bit of fats, you're burning a little bit of glycogen. And then as you sort of get to the end of the glycogen reserves, it shifts a little bit more towards, uh, triglycerides versus that of, uh, glycogen. So that's just how it goes. But of course, what's going to dictate all of it or a lot of it is the basal metabolic rate. So this is the rate, uh, is like the, the, the operational cost of the company. How much does it actually take in order to run the body? It represents the minimum amount of energy expended while at rest, which is necessary for maintaining vital functions like breathing, circulating, and cellular metabolism. So your lungs or not your lungs, but your the, the muscles of respiration, your diaphragm, your intercostals, your abdominal muscles, all of these muscles that are necessary in order for you to breathe require energy. And so it takes a certain amount of energy in order to actually use the muscle in order to breathe. 
oftentimes we don't think of these muscles as we do of muscles like our quadriceps or our biceps, right? Where you're working out. Uh, and you know that if you go and you lift weights, you're working your muscles harder and it takes more energy, but the, the muscles of respiration are also muscles, your diaphragm, intercostal, abdominal muscles, all of these things are no different than that of your bicep and your quadriceps, where if you're breathing, it takes energy. And if you breathe more, it takes more energy. Similarly to the heart, the heart is a muscle. The more that it beats, the more energy that it takes. And so just these basic functions that are necessary in order to keep you alive, these basal vital functions, take a certain amount of energy in order to keep it going. This is also why uh, sometimes with uh, obese individuals, the amount of energy uh, that's expended during certain physical activity or at rest is always going to be higher than that of uh, someone that's less obese. And so this is why sometimes when you go on a weight loss plan, you get a lot of weight loss initially. Some of that co comes from uh, water weight, of course. Uh, but once the water weight's gone, the actual um, weight loss tends to happen faster the more obese the individual is, and then it slows down as you get there. And because the fact of the matter is, is that the more obese that you are, the higher the basic metabolic rate is. And that's just because it has different workloads. If you're more obese, the amount of energy that it takes in order for the diaphragm, the abdominals, the intercostals, these muscles of respiration to actually contract becomes a lot more difficult. It has to overcome the excess weight on your chest. It has to, now, now the muscle has a load that it has to overcome, right? And so this is why sometimes you see, it's kind of interesting, where individuals that were very obese tend to have, if you know, when they lose all of their weight, tend to have very high function of their lungs uh, for sport exercise. And why is that? It's because they've been resistive breathing all of their life. Every time that they take a breath in, the amount of weight that they have to actually move in order to take that breath is so much higher than that of someone that isn't obese. And so those muscles are more developed, right? It's no different than someone that's doing curls with a 30-pound dumbbell versus that of a 15-pound dumbbell. The one that's been doing curls with a 30-pound dumbbell is going to be stronger than that of the one with the 15-pound 15, 15 dumbbell, right? It's just how it goes. Same thing with the heart. The bigger the body, the more blood that needs to be circulated through. And so the cardiac output or the amount of blood that's pumped by the heart, the heart per unit time is going to be higher in those individuals of obesity. And so the amount of energy that your heart actually consumes in order to pump that blood is going to be higher. So, so that being said, the basal metabolic rate, then the amount of energy that it takes just to have vital functions to keep you alive varies among individuals, and it's, of course, influenced by factors like age, sex, muscle mass, genetic predisposition, all these things. But besides insulin, other hormones like glucagon, cortisone, and thyroxine, or th 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 your thyroid hormone, thyroxine, play significant roles in metabolic regulation. And so glycogen, or glucagon, excuse me, uh, acts as insulin's counter-regulatory hormone, and it promotes glycogenolysis, which is the breakdown of glycogen. Sometimes when it comes to understanding terms of physiology, it can be a little bit tricky. Uh, but what you'll notice is a pattern. A lot of these things are either genesis or lysis. Uh, and so glycogenesis would be the formation of glycogen. Glycogenolysis is the breakdown of glycogen. So lysis, again, means breakdown. Look at the word in front of it. Glyco, 
which is sugar. So breakdown of sugar, glycogen lysis, and then gluconeogenesis, which is just the formation of sugar. So glycogen, glycogen, whoa, glycogen lysis, which is the breakdown of glycogen, goes to gluconeogenesis, which is the formation of sugar. So carbohydrates are stored as glycogen. That glycogen is broken down by a process called glycogen lysis, which then goes to feed into gluconeogenesis, which is the formation of sugar. So you take carbohydrates, store them as glycogen, you break down the glycogen, forms into sugar, your body uses the sugar to make ATP. Ta-da, you have metabolic energy for your body. And the rate at which that occurs can be influenced by a number of different things, and it's going to be different for every individual, and so there's no blanket answer to say what is going to increase it or decrease it. There's only certain things that can increase it for certain people under certain conditions, and vice versa. So it gets complicated, I guess. So then moving on to the last part of the equation, calories expended or energy expended. Process is similar to, of course, how a car burns fuel with the rate varying depending on several factors like engine efficiency, driving conditions, and the car's activity. So, uh, first we have the basal metabolic rate, which, of course, we explained before and is the cornerstone of energy expenditure. Similar to a car idling, it's your body idling and how much energy that it actually takes to run it with its life sustaining functions. And so our basic metabolic rate accounts for the largest portion of daily caloric expenditure. And it's of course influenced, like I said, by age, sex, body composition, genetic predisposition, all those things. Someone that's sitting at the pole of Antarctica, freezing their butt off, is going to have a much larger basal metabolic rate because of the amount of energy that's necessary just for thermal regulation to keep them alive versus that of someone that's in a homeothermic or a normal um, uh, temperature controlled environment. So that's a lot of these things go into the basal metabolic rate that are going to be uh, changing how much um, energy is going to be consumed. Interestingly, you know, there was that whole thing about Michael Phelps for a while, and he was eating so much food uh, to keep up with his Olympic training. And somebody had done the math or whatever, and they looked at, okay, if he swims X many hours, this is how many calories that are going to be burned. Uh, But the weird thing is, is that, you know, it didn't... um, the, the amount of energy burned by the swimming activity itself wasn't enough to explain why he was eating 10,000 calories or whatever it was and not gaining any weight. But the thing that was forgot to put in there is that the actual pool itself, the water, was relatively cold. And the amount of body temperature loss in water is much greater than that of air. And so the amount of uh temperature regulation that had to be done by his body in order to just keep himself at a normal body temperature within the pool due to the cold water was already enough to shift his basal metabolic rate through the roof or his, his metabolic rate. I shouldn't say basal because it's not basal at that point, but his metabolic roof metabolic rate was shot through the roof just in order to keep his body warm in the water and then put that on top of the amount of energy that was expended from the hours of swimming, then could account for the amount of energy uh, or the amount of food that was necessary in order to get the calories to keep up with the training. And not only that, but the interesting thing was because the caloric intake was so high, it was like 12,000 calories a day, the amount of energy that it took in order to break down the food just to just to get access to the calories that he needed for his body for 
the training was so high because his stomach had to break down so much food that it it started to be like some ridiculous ratio where, you know, let's just say that out of the 10,000 calories I was eating, he needed like, he needed like a thousand calories just to break down the food itself in order to actually gain access to the energy in order to be used for different bodily functions in order to swim or to keep his body warm. So it's kind of interesting. So like I said, physical activity, of course, dramatically increases the energy expenditure, similar to like how car's fuel consumption increases uh, with speed and train and difficulty, right? So um, includes not just structured exercise, but non-exercise activity thermogenesis, something called NEAT sometimes, which encompasses all the energy expended for activities other than sleeping, eating, or sports like exercise. So it's kind of like uh, think of it as the energy that's just used for daily chores or or walking to work or something like that. And so it's going to be varied very much against different people. And not only that, a lot of the studies on this are self-reported, which is just a nightmare because you have some individuals that self-report and say, I don't do much physical activity. And then you look and they actually ride their bike 20 miles to and from work. And so they have 40 miles of bike riding a day but then they say that they don't work out. And, and so it's like, cool. Now you have someone that has 40 miles of cycling per day and they just put on their questionnaire that they don't work out because they didn't go to the gym. And uh, you're trying to compare the energy expenditure from that person with someone that wakes up and does an entire day of work in their bed and doesn't leave and then just eats and then goes to sleep. And both of those individuals are going to be checkboxed into sedentary lifestyle. So that's fun. Like I said, thermogenesis, you know, in, in talking about that Michael Phelps thing is another critical component, uh, which refers to the production of heat in the body. And it can be divided into two different categories. You have exercise-induced thermogenesis and non-exercise-associated thermogenesis, which includes something called the thermal effect of food and adaptive thermogenesis. The thermal effect of food, again, um, is like the amount of energy that's used for just digesting, absorbing, and assimilating the nutrients. Of course, the more uh, energy that's, or the more food that's being put into the body, or the, the, the tougher it is to actually gain access to the food, that thermal effect is going to be higher because it takes more energy to break it down. Again, things like protein are going to have a higher thermal effect of the food versus that of uh, carbohydrates just because they're they're tougher to um, break down. Adaptive thermogenesis, on the other hand, is an adjustment in energy expenditure in response to environmental changes. And this is why I kept using the, the analogy of sitting at the Antarctic Pole versus that of just sitting in a normal room temperature living room. And so... Uh, the amount of energy then, so the adaptive thermogenesis would be what um, would be the term that's being used to account for the fact that you actually need energy in order to keep your body warm or cool it off, right? And this doesn't, and, and this may or may not include things like sweating and shivering, which are going to take energy as well. So, kind of in sum, the calories expended is very multifaceted. It's influenced by things like basal metabolic functions, physical activities, and the thermal responses of our bodies. So whenever we understand the, the interplay between all of these, you can sort of get an overall dynamics of energy balance and weight management. So then, of course, comes the last part, which is the behavioral 
aspect of energy consumption and energy expenditure. And so when you venture far into the exploration of weight management, it's very imperative to recognize that the complex puzzle extends far beyond the simple calculus of calories in and calories out. It's always going to come down to calories in, calories out. But like I said, there's a ton of different things that affect how many calories go in, and there's a ton of different things that affect the amount of calories that go out. And it's well beyond just the amount of food that's stuffed into your mouth, right? But regardless, it's always, again, going to become calories in and calories out. And it's your job to figure out how many calories is going in to your body, not just the amount of food consumed, but the amount of calories that's going in from your digestive tract into your body. Uh, and the amount of energy that's expended. And that number is not always going to be the same. Sometimes it's going to be higher, sometimes it's going to be lower, and you don't always know why, but that's not the point. It's that sometimes there has to be a little bit of flexibility when it comes to weight loss or weight management plans. And if you're looking at the scale and you're looking at the mirror and you realize that this food plan that I'm on has, which has been working for the last 10 years, is suddenly not working anymore and you're gaining weight, it's not necessarily means that you're not following the plan as you should be. It just means that your body changes. And that could be on a weekly basis. It could be on a monthly basis. It could be on a circadian basis. It could be, and you don't know what it's going to be. But if you just simply track your physique, you track your weight, whatever it might be, you can get an idea of what it is. You just have to be conscious of it. And again, a lot of that comes down to the fact that there's so many different things that are going to affect the amount of energy that's being burned. So first, we begin with sleep. So you can consider sleep as the maintenance downtime for the machine. And <coughs> excuse me, the, the body is the machine. And so just as any machine requires regular maintenance to function optimally, our bodies need quality sleep for various metabolic and hormonal processes. And poor quality sleep is known to affect uh, in hormones like leptin and ghrelin, which regulate aptolite. So you can dysregulate the regulation of these hormones and the sensitivity to them from sleep deprivation, uh, which is going to, again, potentially lead to increased caloric intake and weight gain. There's also stress. If we think of, uh, stress is going to trigger things such as the release of cortisone, which is, um, a glucocorticoid, uh, and the reason it's called a glucocorticoid and the reason it has the word gluco is glucose. And so it changes the amount of uh, glucose that's going to be surging around and giving uh, energy into our body. And so the more glucose that you have available, the more that can be stored. And so you can start to, uh, and conversely, the more that can be burned as well, right? But if you have sort of this dysregulation of cortisol release where you have cortisol being released at the wrong time, and you know normally cortisol is is a stress hormone. It's released during times of stress. And in case of a bear running at you, it's nice to have cortisol because cortisol can spike your blood glucose. It can, it can increase the amount of sugars that are floating around in your blood that are available to be used by your muscles for energy. But, uh, humans as they are, uh, very good at, uh, is changing the context of different situations and applying it to things that may not be necessary. And so uh, sometimes cortisol, excess cortisol can happen from just having stress of reading emails or doing whatever at work. And so now you're sitting at the desk, but you have the cortisol levels as if you're running away from a bear. And as far as your body knows, it has no idea whether you're running away from a bear or whether you're reading an email all it knows is the cortisol is high. And so if the cortisol is high, you're going to get blood glucose. You're going to get an increase in blood glucose. 
And if you're running away from a bear, it's nice because you need that extra glucose for your muscles. If you're sitting reading an email, you don't need that glucose. And so that glucose then is going to be subsequently stored and you're going to have uh, a condition that's going to promote fat storage. Uh, and a lot of times this can be seen in primarily the abdominal region, but not always. But regardless, stress often leads to also things like emotional eating, uh, where food becomes sort of a coping mechanism and also then is going to increase the amount of caloric intake or the amount of food that's actually going into your uh, into your gut. Lastly, genetics, just the blueprint or the design of the of the human machine, genetics plays a very significant role in determining our basal metabolic rate. It also determines things like fat distribution, muscle composition, and even our behavioral tendencies related to eating and physical activity. Some people stress eat. Some people stress fast. Some people don't eat when they're stressed. Some people eat a lot. I mean, it's very different. And some of it might be nature. Some of it might be nurture. It's kind of hard to control for, but we can't alter our genetic makeup. So understanding its impact on weight management can help tailor a more effective and personalized strategy. Uh, but again, it's all going to come down to, again, you, regardless of you knowing your genetic makeup, the more important thing is to just understand how much you're eating versus how your body composition is changing. And it's not always going to be a fixed process, a fixed process. So with that being said, somehow we have already gotten to an hour of, um, weight loss. And so we only got through one of the papers of a prospective study of holiday weight gain. Uh, but Quickly, the other papers, one of them is called The Effect of Holiday Weight Gain on Body Weight in the Journal of Physiology and Behavior. Uh, it found that during the period of mid-November and mid-January that the average individual in Western societies gains about 0.5 kilograms, which is similar to that of uh, the previous study, and the range in individual weight changes was large. Uh, however, those that were already overweight and obese tend to gain more weight than those of healthy weight. And so people that are at a healthy weight tend to gain less weight during the holidays than that of those that are obese. And so perhaps you could say that it's just a percentage thing. And so a similar amount of body weight percentage change might be some seen between the two groups, but it's probably more likely that the healthy weight group tended to have better eating behaviors throughout the holidays versus that of the uh, obese group that tended to have uh, worse, just normal eating behaviors. And so when you add the holidays on top of that, it sort of exacerbates the already poor uh, eating behavior that's already underlying. So with that, let's wrap this episode up. Uh, I hope you all had a wonderful holiday season, whether or not you're uh, succumbing to the half a kilogram increase in weight. I know I gained weight, but I also ate a ton of food. Uh, so it's not really a secret why the weight was gained. But as long as you know how to lose the weight and you don't stress over it and raise your glucose or your blood sugar even higher just because you're stressing over the fact that you're gaining weight, it's only a pound, right? So theoretically, losing a one pound should not be that hard. Unless you're in the typical Midwest holiday where uh, eating and drinking is considered a national sport, especially where I was from, and you're certainly going to be gaining a lot more than one pound. Regardless. Anyways, hope you had a wonderful holiday season. Enjoy.